you would, please turn in your Bibles to the Gospel of John, the Gospel of John in chapter 3, John chapter 3. We continue this morning in our series in the Gospel of John, our regular exposition of this great book, and we come this morning to John chapter 3 and verse 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, impress us with the beauty of this text, the truth that it reveals to us, that you, Father, have sent your own Son into the world to die so that whoever might believe would not perish but have everlasting life. We thank you that it is so. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. There's no question that John 3.16 in our culture today, at least in America, though it's probably true worldwide, uh, is the most well-known verse in all of the Bible. Uh, even those who are unchurched, even those who didn't grow up memorizing verses of Scripture or hearing sermons preached, uh, are often familiar with this one verse found in John chapter 3. Uh, you might see John 3.16 on a poster at a, a, a ball game or something like that. You might see it even as a tattoo on someone's arm, something like that. It's uh, so prevalent in terms of the Christian message and in our culture's awareness of the Bible. I want to say something in by way of introduction um, on this text First of all, to those of you who are outside of Christ and maybe don't have a church background and aren't familiar uh, with more of the finer points of Christianity, if, if this were your first exposure to Christianity today, I don't think that there is a better verse in the Bible that we could consider together. If I could take you through one verse, I'd love to take you through more than one verse, but if I could only take you through one verse, I would go to this text in John chapter 3 and verse 16. What I want you to know today is that the message of this verse is at the center of the Christian message. Of course, there's more we could convey to you about what Christianity is about and what Christianity teaches, but John 3.16 is at the very center of the message of Christianity, of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So this morning, if this is one of your first exposures to Christianity, well then you picked a good day to be here because we will consider this morning the very essence of our faith. The second thing I wanna say by way of introduction is to those who are very familiar with John 3.16. You grew up reciting the verse as a kid, you've heard plenty of sermons on John 3.16, perhaps you even quote it often, perhaps you have it on a coffee mug at home. Uh, the, the question might emerge, uh, should John 3.16 receive such a place of priority and prominence in our faith? Certainly quoted more than any text of Scripture, but is it really at the heart of the Christian message? Aren't there other things that should receive more attention? And the simple answer to that question is no. There's nothing more important revealed in all of the Bible than what we have here in John 3.16. 
I want you to be clear unmistakably that what is communicated about God and his redemptive purposes in sending his son Jesus Christ into the world, that the gospel might be freely offered to anyone who believes that they might have everlasting life, it's at the very essence of what we believe. And, and with you this morning, I hope to, if, if it's not your opinion, uh, to persuade you of that opinion. More than that, I hope this morning to convey uh, the ongoing significance of John 3.16 for the believer. This is not just a text we hear at the front end of our life in Christ to sort of get us in the door. This is the whole journey. Uh, John 3.16 has tremendous implications for every Christian in this room for our pilgrimage through this world as followers of Jesus Christ, and we will consider that together this morning. Uh, but I'd like to open up John 3.16 to you this morning under three main headings. Three main headings to expound the meaning of this verse. First of all, we'll consider a great love, secondly, a costly gift, and then thirdly, a free offer. What do we have in John 3.16? We have described a great love, a costly gift, and a free offer. So let's consider together first a great love. The verse opens with these words, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. I think we can see the greatness of God's love expressed in three ways in these words. We see, first of all, the unworthiness of love's object, the vastness of love's embrace, and thirdly, the greatness of love's provision. First of all, under a great love, consider the unworthiness of love's object. Who or what was the object of God's love in this verse? Who's the object? Who or what? God so loved the world. The world is the object of God's love, and the sinners in the world, which is everyone. Now, now if you've been with us in this series, and I know not everybody here has, but if you've been with us in this series of the Gospel of John, we've talked a little bit, haven't we, about John's usage of that word, world. What does John mean when he uses that word, world? What is he getting at? That word is used 78 times in John's Gospel. Uh, what does he mean by his usage of that word world? I wonder how many of you could uh, recite the definition we gave to that word. We said that when John uses the word world, almost always, he is referring to the created order in active rebellion against God. That's the world in John's usage. The created order in active rebellion against God. It's used 78 times in John's gospel. Never is it used positively. A few times it's used neutrally, but the vast majority of times it's used negatively to describe the created order, that is, all men and women in the world in active rebellion against their maker, against their creator. And thus we see in John 3.16, when we read God so loved the world, the greatness of God's love is not so much to be seen primarily in the bigness of the world. That's often how we hear it. God so loved the world. There's like eight billion people in the world, and that's true. The world is vast. God loves them all. But that's not exactly the emphasis here. The greatness of God's love is not to be seen so much in the bigness of the world as it is in the badness of the world. It's that God loved the world. That realm of sin and darkness and rebellion 
God loved that, that sphere, that created order in active rebellion against him. That was the object of his love. You might remember, if you know the Bible well, back in Genesis, there's a, a scene that's recorded there of God looking down upon humanity. And what does he find? That the intents and desires of their hearts were only evil continually. Listen, the situation hasn't much changed since then. And yet, God looks on that object and what he experiences toward the world is love. God's love is seen to be great in that it was set on so unworthy an object. The created order and act of rebellion against him and yet his love runs out toward such people. See, God was not just so compelled to send his son into the world because the world was just so lovely. Just gotta have the world and I'll do whatever it takes to get, but that's not the idea at all. God's love is an act of condescension. He sees, he sees the world in sin and darkness and in rebellion and he's moved to pity. He's moved to compassion, he's moved to mercy and his love runs out to unworthy objects in sin and in darkness. God's love is thus seen to be so great and that he loves so unworthy an object. But the second way in which God's love is seen to be great, consider with me the vastness of love's embrace. The unworthiness of love's object, secondly, the vastness of love's embrace. Like I said, the emphasis is certainly on the badness of the world, the evil of the world, the unworthiness of the world. But there still is something to be said about the bigness or the vastness of the world. God's love is seen to be, in John 3.16, more vast than one particular people group. God's love is set on a company much greater than a mere handful. He's not the God of the Jews only. In fact, we'll see later on in John 4 at the end of that chapter, the Samaritans say, we know indeed this is the Savior of the world. God's love is not limited to one particular people group. He is the Savior of the world. And the Apostle John would go on later in an epistle he wrote in 1 John chapter 2 to say that he, Christ, is the propitiation for our sins, but not ours only, but also for the sins of the world. When Jesus Christ came into the world, when he was uh, born of the Virgin Mary, the angel said this, fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all people. For all people. It's not just going to be the Jews. It's not just going to be this household. The good news of Jesus Christ is for all people. And that's why we're getting ready to sing joy to the world. The Lord is come. Let earth receive her king. Let every heart prepare him room. And let heaven and nature sing. God's love is toward the world. So it's no surprise that when Jesus, having died and risen again, is meeting with his assembled disciples, he doesn't say to them, good job, guys. We did it. Let's coast from here on out. No, he gives them instructions. He says, you're to go into the world and make disciples of all nations. And then you get to the book of Acts, which is a recording of the early events of the church's history. We read in Acts 1, verse 8, that God called his church to go into Judea and Samaria and to the uttermost parts of the world. Why? Because God loves the world. And God is winning for himself a people from every tribe, tongue, people, and nation. This message of John 
is not limited to a small band of disciples. It's to be published for the whole world to hear. And indeed, that's what we see as we get a picture into the end of all things in the book of Revelation. Again, the Apostle John looking ahead to what's to come. What does he see in Revelation 5, verse 9? He sees a great company singing to the Lamb. Worthy are you to take the scrolls and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed a people from every tribe, every tongue, every people, and every nation. Because God so loved the world. We see the greatness of his love, not only in the unworthiness of love's object, but in the vastness of love's embrace. His love indeed encompasses the whole world. Now, don't misunderstand what I'm saying. Don't misunderstand the verses that I've referenced. John 3.16 and the other verses I've marshaled to make this point do not advocate for what's known as universalism. They don't teach that every single person ever born is saved from their sins. They don't teach that God saves all men and women without exception. But these verses do teach that God saves men and women without distinction. In other words, God doesn't discriminate against people on the basis of ethnicity. He doesn't discriminate on the basis of economic opportunity or advantage. He doesn't prefer a certain personality type over another. He doesn't require a certain cultural heritage or pedigree. The Bible says again and again, there's no partiality with God. There's no partiality with God. He's saving all kinds of people, all kinds of people. God's love embraces the rich as well as the poor. His love embraces the young and the old, the introvert and the extrovert, the strong and the weak, the untouchables of society as well as the social elite. God has set his love on all types of sinners throughout time and across the globe who do nothing other than renounce their sin and believe upon Jesus Christ for salvation. God's not taking applications He's not scrutinizing your qualifications to inherit eternal life. He's making a free offer to any and all who come to him, and his love is so vast, it can embrace the vilest sinner with the longest rap sheet, and it can embrace a whole world full of such sinners. But again, on this point of the greatness of God's love, we've seen that it's expressed in the unworthiness of love's object, the vastness of love's embrace, thirdly and finally, I want you to notice the greatness of love's provision. The greatness of love's provision. God gave the greatest possible expression of his love by sending his own son into the world to die for the sins of those he loves. How do I know that God's love is so great? How do I know that? Well, it's not purely nominal. It's not just because he said so. It's because he sent his son into the world to die for the sins of his people. That's how I know. Romans 5 and verse 8, for God demonstrates his love for us. How? How how has God demonstrated his love? In that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And Paul will go on to say in Romans chapter 8, he who did not spare his own son, how will he not freely with him give us all things? 1 John 4, verse 9 through 10, in this the love of God was made manifest among us, was revealed among us. How do I know that God loves me? That God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. And this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Now notice, it's an extremely important point. 
People very often trip up on this, okay? God did not send his son into the world to make us love a bull, okay? God doesn't love us because of what Jesus did. Rather, Jesus came precisely in consequence of God's love. It's because he loved us. Even while we were dead in our trespasses and sins, while we were yet sinners, Christ came and died for us. We have to get away from any sort of imagination that says that, well, well, well God was just so angry and wrath-filled toward the world, and Jesus had to come and pretty us up for him. No, no, it's precisely because God loved a world full of sinners that he sent his son into the world that whoever believes in him may not perish but have everlasting life. The Scottish preacher and Bible commentator John Brown said this, the atonement, that is Christ's work on the cross, is not the cause but the effect of the love of God. J.C. Ryle has said, to say that God loves us because Christ died for us is wretched theology indeed. But to say that Christ came into the world in consequence of the love of God, that is scriptural truth. You say that, that, that because Christ died, now we can be loved? If that's your argument, Ryle's saying that's wretched theology indeed. But if you say that Christ came precisely in consequence of God's love toward us, that's scriptural truth. You can take that to the bank. How do I know that God loves the world? Because he sent his son. And how can you know that God loves you. I have no other argument. I need no other plea. It's enough that Jesus died and that he died for me. That's how you know God loves you. That he sent his son into the world that if you believe on him, you might have everlasting life. So we've considered together now a great love, the love contained in John three sixteen. Now the second major point, consider with me a costly gift seen a great love, secondly, a costly gift. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Christ, Ryle says, is God the Father's gift to a lost and sinful world. He was given to be the savior, the redeemer, and the friend of sinners. And I want us to consider for just a moment just how costly it was for the Father to give his only son. And we need not go outside the Gospel of John to establish this point. Again, if you've been with us, John chapter one, the very first verses, what do we read there? In the beginning was the Word. The Word is a reference to Jesus Christ. So in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and the Word was in the beginning with God. Which means Jesus Christ, the Son of God, was with the Father in the beginning, and eternity passed. I can't really even conceive of that. What does that mean? Well, at the very least, it means that there was this life that existed in the Godhead between the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. It was an intimate kind of life, a self-reciprocating kind of life. And Jesus was there, the Son, with the Father in the beginning through all eternity past. Then we read John 1, verse 18, no one has ever seen God except the only God, that is Jesus Christ, who is in the bosom of the Father. He has made him known. He was in the bosom of the Father. He was at the Father's side. He was at a place of intimacy with the Father throughout all eternity. God's Son was in a place of intimacy with him in the very bosom of the Father. Well, then we read John chapter 10, verse 30. Jesus says, I and the Father 
are one. There's a oneness that exists in the relationship between Jesus and his Father. And then Jesus prays in John 17, verse 21, you, Father, are in me, and I in you. So this one, this Jesus Christ, the Son who was with the Father in the beginning, who is in the bosom of the Father, who was one with the Father, and who was in the Father, and the Father was in him, this one was betrayed and maligned and beaten and crucified on a tree outside the city and was made a bloody spectacle, the object of the Father's wrath towards sin. It's a costly gift. God's own Son, who throughout eternity past was in the bosom of the Father, who was even one with the Father, who was in the Father and the Father was in Him. This one is the gift that God gives to the world and it is a costly gift. God poured out His wrath on His own Son. Isaiah 53 tells us it was the will of the Lord to crush Him. It was the will of the Lord to crush Him. Why? Was this cosmic child abuse? Was this divine sadism? No, it was the will of the Lord to crush him because of God's love for sinners. Which means the motivation of God's wrath poured out on his only begotten son, Jesus Christ, was ultimately love. Love towards sinners like you and like me. Why does the Father pour out the cup of his wrath full stop on his Son, because he loves sinners and wants to save them. Isaiah 53 does go on to say that. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. You ever consider that phrase, with his wounds we are healed? It's a peculiar phrase. It is that as, as Christ, the Son of God, is wounded, we're, we're, we're experiencing healing. His wounds have a healing effect on us, which means that when you see Jesus Christ in the Bible scourged by the Romans, and when you see him flogged by Pontius Pilate, and when you see the crown of thorns crash down upon his brow, and when you see him stumbling as he carries the weight of the cross, when you see the nails driven into his hands and his feet, and when you hear his cry, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Remember that it's by those very wounds that you and I can be healed. Salvation comes through those wounds. Healing comes by those stripes. The forgiveness of sins comes from those drops of blood. One of the greatest expositions of that line by his wounds we are healed is found in one of my favorite songs that we sing here at Emmanuel and the line goes five bleeding wounds he bears received on Calvary they pour effectual prayers they strongly plead for me the wounds are saying something what do they say the line goes on forgive him oh forgive they cry Forgive him, oh, forgive, they cry, nor let that ransomed sinner die. God's son died and his blood was shed so that we can have eternal life through faith in him. By his wounds, we are healed. And indeed, Jesus was crushed, but he was that we could be set free. 
He was scourged so that we could be healed. He died so that we can have salvation. Oh, friends, God's gift was costly. His love for sinners caused him to pour out his wrath toward sin on his own dear son. All that we might have eternal life and the forgiveness of sins. It was a costly gift. But now thirdly and finally, thirdly and finally, we've seen a great love, we've seen the costly gift. Thirdly and finally, in John 3.16, we have a free offer. A free offer. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. That whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Whoever believes in him. Whoever believes in him. And don't play games with the text. I mean, whoever means whoever. Anybody. You want eternal life. You want to believe on Jesus. This is his posture towards you, arms spread wide, saying, whoever believes may have everlasting life. You, you children, when you think about Jesus, you hear about Jesus in your classes, right, in Sunday school, and certainly hear about Jesus in, in hopefully these sermons from week to week. I, I hope as you read about Jesus, you imagine Jesus in your head. That's fine, that's good, he was a man, he had flesh just like I do, okay? It's, it's okay to imagine what Jesus was like and, and how he interacted with people from time to time. And I wonder, when you imagine Jesus, what posture is he in? I want you to, to have this image in your mind, okay? When you think about Jesus, you should not think of him standing like this. You should think of him like this, arms spread wide, saying to you that whoever believes in me will not perish but have everlasting life. That's Jesus' posture toward the world. It's a free offer, sincerely offered to any and all who wish to be rid of sin and wish to escape everlasting punishment and wish to inherit eternal life with him. That's what the verse goes on to say. Whoever believes in him, who has faith in him, and faith is staking all that I am on all that he is, believing his promises, embracing his provisions, whoever believes in him should not perish. Should not perish. Every single human being is born into this world in a state of sin, dead in sin, and is perishing. The world is full of people who are perishing. If you're outside of Christ right now, you are perishing. You know what the saddest thing about that is? You don't have to. You don't have to perish. You are perishing if you're outside of Christ, but you don't have to. Because of God and his great love and his costly gift and his free offer to you that if you believe upon him, have faith in his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, you will not perish. You'll have your sins forgiven and you'll be given the gift of everlasting life. Listen, no one here needs to perish if you hear this message and receive it. You don't need to die in your sins. You don't need to go to hell. You're under no pressure to do that. And what's so sad is that the gospel is held before you now and some, 
maybe even now are rejecting it, closing their hearts to it. I want to urge you, plead with you, beg you, don't do that. It's a free offer, a free gift. God's own son punished in your place. And if you believe on him, I tell you this morning, you will be saved. This is at the heart of the message of the Bible. All those who believe on God's provision, his own dear son who went to the cross to die for sinners, will not perish but have everlasting life. And listen, that's not just like a footnote in the message of Christianity. That's the whole thing. That's the big deal. That's why we gather here week after week and worship God together because he has shown his love toward us and his own son. And we've experienced his grace and we are the inheritors of eternal life. It's found all over the Bible. John 6, verse 37, all that the Father gives me will come to me and whoever comes to me, I'll take it under advisement. We'll consider your application. Now, whoever comes to me, I will by no means cast out. He's not gonna reject a single soul who comes to him in repentance and faith. John 7, verse 37, Jesus stood up and cried out, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. One of my favorite, favorite texts on the free offer of the gospel is found in the book of Isaiah, verse 55. Come, everyone who thirsts. Are you thirsty? Not having the cravings of your heart satisfied by the passing pleasures of the world. Come, everyone who thirsts. Come to the waters. He who has no money, come, buy, and eat. But I don't have any money. Nothing in my hand I bring. Simply to your cross I cling. You who don't have any money, come and buy and eat without money and without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread and your labor for that which does not satisfy? Why do you do it? Why waste yourself on the passing pleasures of this world? You're buying food that won't satisfy your needs. And Jesus is saying, come without money. It's a free gift and it will satisfy you and you will never thirst or hunger again. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread and your labor for that which does not satisfy? Listen diligent to me and eat what is good and delight yourselves in rich food. Incline your ear and come to me. Hear that your soul may live. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord that the Lord may have compassion on him and to our God for he will abundantly pardon. He will abundantly forgive. I have nothing to offer God. I come with my empty cup and I ask him to fill it. Matthew 11, verse 28 through 29, come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. This is his posture, arms spread wide. Are you thirsty? Are you hungry? Are you burdened? Are you weary? Are you heavy laden? Are you tired of being used and abused by the world? Are you tired of darkness and sin? Then come to me, I have rest for your soul. Come inside, it's warm by the fire of my love. 
You'll find safety. You'll find a home. You'll find a place. You'll find rest for your soul. You'll find everlasting life. Come. Come to me. Come and drink. Come and eat. Come and find rest. This is the offer of the gospel. And it is a free offer for all those who don't have any money, don't have any good works to bring, who come with nothing in their hands, but are simply clinging to what God offers in Jesus Christ. I love this quote from the man John Brown who I mentioned earlier. He says this, no degree of previous guilt, no former habits of sin, no secret decree of God, no involuntary mistake, no feebleness in attempting to come to him will endure to reject a single individual who in faith of the truth comes to him for salvation. So I plead with you, my friend, to believe on Jesus Christ, the Son of God, and to embrace the message of this text, that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes, even you, will not perish, but have everlasting life. Now in the minutes that remain, I want to speak primarily to our church family here at Emmanuel. And by saying that, I don't want anyone here who's not part of our church family to kind of shut off at this point. We want you to hear what I'm about to share with our church family, okay? What relevance does this text have for us? I mean, untold relevance, right? I just want to zero in on three things, three things to say to our church family as we seek to get the most out of John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. The first thing I wish to say to you is this. If God so loved the world, if God so loved the world, sinners in need of grace, how much more so ought we? How much more so ought we? See, see, God scaled the vast chasm between his perfections and his beauty and his holiness. And he scaled that chasm and condescended to vile sinners in need of grace. There's no chasm we have to scale. We're made of the same stuff they are. How much more so should we love them? Feel a sense of solidarity with sinners. We're sinners just like you in need of grace. I could tell you all about that. Our, our fundamental posture towards sinful people in rebellion against God who are outside of Christ, outside of his grace, outside of the church, ought to be love. We have no excuse to entertain in our hearts and to nurture a posture of judgment and self-righteousness toward those who are outside of Christ. That is utterly antithetical to the gospel of Jesus Christ. We who know what it is to be in sin and in darkness ought to be the most compassionate people in the world. We ought to love sinners. God so loved the world. How can we who have been shown his love and his grace not love sinners as well? And so I hope, brothers and sisters, that our hearts will run out to a lost and sinful generation and to a lost and sinful world. That we'll plead with God, like we won't just sing songs like the one we sung a moment ago, how sweet and awful. That we won't sing songs like that in some sort of a tacit way, but that we could say, Lord, we long to see your churches full, that all the chosen race may with one voice and heart and song sing thy redeeming grace. We want to plead with God, pity the nations, O our God. Restrain the earth to come. Send your victorious word abroad and use us if you would 
and bring the strangers home. Second thing I wish to say to our church family, if God so loved us, we ought to love one another. That's a more narrow group now. I'm not talking about everyone in the world. We ought to love everyone in the world. Every single person you meet, you ought to love them. Now I'm talking about the special, peculiar love that is to be shown between brothers and sisters in the church. God demonstrates his love toward us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us, right? Behold what manner of love the Father has given unto us, right? And then John goes on to say, let us love one another, for love is of God and everyone who loves is born of God. He who does not love his brother or his sister doesn't know God because God is love. Remember what we talked about last week? That which is born of flesh is flesh. That which is born of spirit is spirit. That which is born of a duck is a duck. That which is born of a dog is a dog. If you're born of God, you can't help but be like God who is love. So you appreciate the logic, right? God is love. And he who does not love his brother or his sister does not know God because God is love. Simply put, if you don't love your brothers and sisters in the church, you're not a Christian. Don't fool yourself. That posture that says, I'm, I'm okay with God, I'm okay with Jesus Christ, it's all the Christians I can't handle. You're not a Christian if that's your posture. You're going to hell if that's your posture. God is love. And everyone who is born of God loves. We ought to be full of love toward our brothers and sisters. What does it say to a lost and dying world? What does it say about the love of God if we do not love one another? Our love toward one another in the church should be our greatest sermon about God's love. And I hope as you think about your life in the church and your contribution to life in the church, at the very top of your priorities ought to be to maintain and to nurture and to steward love and unity among the congregation. These are my brothers and sisters and my job is to love them. Not in some sort of nominal token way. But love through differences. Love through disagreements. The sort of love that covers a multitude of sins. Loving when it's uncomfortable to love. That's when our faith is tested. Do we really love as God loves? Well, brothers and sisters, I hope you make it a top priority to steward and nurture love within this body of the church because God has so loved us and the ultimate vindication of God's love in our lives is that we have been transformed and become loving people. Third and final thing I wish to say to our church family. If John 3.16 is true, everyone in the world needs to know about this. Everyone in the world. He's the only provision. There's no salvation outside of Jesus Christ. The only redeemer of God's elect is the Lord Jesus. There's no salvation outside of his name. And so I mean it, everyone needs to hear about this message. And so what are we going to do? What can we do? I'm sure I don't have all the answers to that, but asking that question is a start. What can we do as a church family to see that this message is published not only in our church, not only in our zip code, not only in our city, but all over the world? Everyone must hear this message of the great love of God, the costly gift of his own dear son, and the free offer that whoever believes should not perish but have everlasting life.
Let's pray together. Our Father, it's an unspeakable privilege to be the stewards of this gospel, to be your appointed heralds of this gospel. You've not given us a message of judgment and condemnation to proclaim, but a message of salvation and hope. Indeed, we do call the world to flee the wrath to come, but to flee into the arms of Jesus Christ, who is a Savior and a friend of sinners. Lord, we pray that every soul here would embrace him as such, a Savior for their sins, a Lord over their lives, one who can give rest and who can give life and who can give health and peace. Give that to each one through your Son, we pray. And Lord, please help us, show us how to publish this good news to everyone. We do say in sincerity of the truth and from the bottom of our hearts that we do long to see your churches full. We do plead with you to pity them. We do plead with you to constrain the earth to come so that more sinners can be pressed into the kingdom and that we might have the opportunity, even ourselves, not somebody else, but that even we might be able to compel some that they may come in to the wedding feast. So please, Lord, show us how to do that in the ways you've called us to. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.